welcome to Voices from the Field, a podcast produced by the National Collaborating Centre for Indigenous Health. NCCIH focuses on innovative research and community-based initiatives promoting the health and well-being of First Nation, Inuit, and Métis peoples in Canada. This episode is based on a keynote address, uncovering the forced and or coerced sterilization of Indigenous women. Delivered by Senator Yvonne Boyer and Dr. Judith Bartlett on January 28, 2020, it was part of the National Gathering on Culturally Informed Choice and Consent in Indigenous Health Services. NCCIH was honored to have these esteemed Métis women, scholars, and health professionals present their findings based on their seminal paper, External Review on Tubal Ligation in the Saskatoon Health Region, The Lived Experience of Aboriginal Women. A member of the Métis Nation of Ontario, with her ancestral roots in the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan and the Red River, Senator Boyer has a background in nursing, a Doctor of Laws from the University of Ottawa, and was named to the Senate of Canada in 2018. Raised in northern Manitoba, Dr. Judith Bartlett is a retired Métis physician with decades of experience in the health, research, and community health development sectors. In 2015, I was at Brandon University and uh, I was busy doing my thing and I got a call from Betty Ann Adam of the Star Phoenix and she said, hey Vaughn, there's two women that have come to me that have been sterilized in a Saskatoon hospital and they're Indigenous and they were sterilized against their will and I said, what? what uh, what's going on there? And she said, well, what do you, what do you think about this? And I said, well, of course, I flew into a rant and I said, well, what about an assault? What about um, Indigenous rights? What about UNDRIP? What about consent? What about malpractice? What about, what about, what about, what about? And these two women were the first women to come forward. And this is Tracy Benab and Brenda Palche. And I mention their names because they are the most courageous, brave women on earth. They, they, what they underwent after they came forward was brutal with uh, social media and, and uh, racist and derogatory remarks about who they were. So that, that was the beginning. And then more women came forward and more women came forward and more and more. And then pretty soon I'm thinking, what's going on? I'm getting interviews, requests from various media outlets, and I'm saying exactly the same thing. This is unheard of. This is terrible. This can't be happening. Why are they sterilizing these women? And and so I had probably given four or five interviews across the country. And then I got a call from the Saskatoon Health Authority. And they said to me, would you do an external review of our practices on tubal ligation? And I said, are you sure you know who you're talking to? I've been bad-mouthing you all over the country. And, and they said, yes, we're sure. The elders have asked for you. And so I said, yes, I'll do it. And I realized that I couldn't do it. This isn't something that I could do by myself. Judy and I had worked together at Naho many years before, 
And uh, we, we were very compatible working together. And she had the background as a Métis physician, and I was an old operating room nurse. And I knew the culture. We both knew the culture of what goes on in the OR. We knew the culture of the hospitals. And so we, we were a good pair. So the first, the first reaction that uh, when the women came forward before the actual review was started was they did a knee, the Saskatoon Health Authority did a knee-jerk reaction and changed the tubal ligation policy to prevent any tubal ligations from going forward unless there had been previous discussion with the obstetrician and the woman who was giving birth. But that caused a lot of problems for Indigenous women because many of the women that were going to the hospital were from the north. And they also had either didn't have prenatal care. They went into a walk-in clinic. So it immediately removed the agency of these women to be able to choose to have a tubal ligation if they wanted to. Or maybe they had used a traditional midwife. So Judy and I both had kinship relations and research relations in Saskatchewan. I was born and raised there. I had uh, finished school, some of, some of my studies in Saskatchewan. And uh, I had already developed a fairly wide network in Saskatoon. And we were pretty well sitting well, reaching out into the Aboriginal community. And what we did, first of all, was we engaged Mary Lee, who is a Cree elder, and we wanted to make sure that we were using proper protocols and process while we were doing this. And Wilna Massascapo, who is also a Cree speaker. I had worked with uh, both of these lovely women in the past, and Wilna became our ground, our ears and eyes on the ground, and she was the first person that any women that we'd be interviewing would speak with. The catchment area of Saskatoon includes much of the north where there's uh, many, many Cree speakers. Mary was always available. She was our... Uh, she was our, our skeleton. She kept us up. She was always available when we were doing the interviews and would become part of the interview process if the woman wished or if they wanted to speak with her or provide counseling for her after the interview. She stayed close to us, but she didn't come in unless she was invited. She was in the room next to us generally, and she was beating, and she was always available to us. And it was really important that we all stayed together very close. Every morning, we prayed. We knew that we had a very difficult job to do, and Mary was the one that grounded us. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in, in this talk, uh, talking about community-based research, and because it was a really an important um, underpinning approach to what we did, and that that, uh, you know, for instance, I would not have taken this project on if the community had not asked me to do it. Um, because the idea has to, the issues have to come from the community. If, if, if it's not, and not only the Aboriginal community, but the health community, they have to have a willingness to make changes. So we met with uh, a lot of Aboriginal people. We took two trips to Saskatoon to do engagement meetings with the Aboriginal communities, because there's a broad scope of people um, that, that uh, of Aboriginal people there, 
and also with the health sector. And with both of them, we we actually reviewed our draft questions and and uh, got their feedback on exactly what it was that needed to be asked. As far as the actual interview process, we had many, many people call us and hung up, and many of them said nothing. And we expected that because we soon realized that the women that we had interviewed and were interviewing were very traumatized and had definitely were in PTSD. I'd never seen anything like the, like the damage that had been done to these women. We had 18 women called that we actually connected with. We interviewed seven in person, six in person, one by phone, and others had appointments, but they were unable to keep it for the simple reason they were too traumatized. We had nine call the nine healthcare providers, and we interviewed nine those nine healthcare providers. Just a quote from from one of the women that that we did interview. She said, I had a lot lot of anxiety when I agreed to do the interview. I wasn't sure if I was going to go through with it. My daughter came with me. And this woman, her and her daughter sat downstairs. um, And the whole time, it, it, it was really difficult for her not to get up and walk out before we came to meet her. It was really difficult for them. So I want to just mention, too, again, on how important it was that we had Mary Lee with us, because this was very, it was traumatic for Judy and I as well. And when we asked Mary to come into the room when somebody had fallen apart, Mary would come in and say, I will hug you back together. And she would hold her until she could speak again. The women were completely devastated and untrusting of any health care and probably Many of them had never sought health care after the sterilization. So I'm going to talk now about what women said and what, what was going on with them. They were definitely one of the major areas was they were feeling invisible, profiled, and powerless. They're, they felt that there was an abuse of power, that no information was given, or if it was, it was misrepresented. One woman said, I was sterilized when I was in my 20s. Another said, it was just like, we're going to do this. And after I wasn't told anything, no explanation that it was permanent. Something that came up over and over and over again from the women as well as from the health care providers was the impact of external agencies, in particular child and family services. One woman said, any woman with a history of children in care, there's a birth alert that goes on her chart, and her baby is almost automatically apprehended. They were feeling like they were being profiling, that there was racism and discrimination, Um, For example, one woman went to a walk-in clinic throughout her whole pregnancy and ended up feeling like she was being judged as as not responsible, simply because there was no access for her. Walk-in clinic was the best for her. And she said, "I I saw the same doctor all the time, 
So it, it was difficult for her. One woman was uh, talked about how invisible she felt. She she said it it was as though I was not even in the room. She had been coerced for a long time, years, to have tubal ligation, and and what then she says I'm pregnant, and the nurse is supposed to be talking to me, and she's talking to my husband like I'm not even in the room. And worse for her was the fact that the doctor eventually convinced the husband that it was too dangerous for her to have any more children. Women, in terms of the actual experience of coercion, um, some were coerced immediately after they had their baby, and as I said, some were, uh, were under pressure for, for years. One woman said, yeah, for three years I felt coerced. Another said, and the doctor explained to me in medical terms. However, I understood it was a form of birth control. Others stated they did not sign consent. One said, no consent form for a tubal ligation was given to me, not explained. Some said no before going into the, into the operating room. One woman said, I refused up to the very end. Like in the morning, you need to sign. I didn't want to. Even on the table, I didn't want to. All women felt that no should mean no. The third larger area uh, is where women were experiencing really severe impacts on their self-image, their relationships, and their ability to access health care. In terms of ongoing personal impacts, uh, one woman said, I'm a good mother. I would like, I would have liked to have more kids. A very good mother. I kept all my kids. I worked. Another said, it's like nobody's ever going to want me anymore. I don't feel like a woman. And a woman said, and it's just like something left me. I just cried, and I knew I couldn't do anything. And when another woman said, for all those years, it was blocked. The feeling was just blocked. Relationships were impacted uh, for these women, and from the incident on, their life changed. A, one, a woman said, yeah, but... It was one of the factors that why our relationship ended. Another said, I said no to a marriage because I knew he wanted to have kids. I couldn't have no more. Another woman said, I got remarried. I've told him what happened. He says, if your tubes weren't tied, we'd have a baby. It kind of breaks me, she said, when he says stuff like that. Women were disengaged from health care as a result of this. And, and one woman said, I don't go to a doctor anymore, especially a gynecologist. The fear is so, I don't know if I can overcome it. Another woman said, I won't go for pap tests. It's too scary. The, um, I won't go to, to a doctor. Even when they know that they're at risk for diseases. One woman said, I'm at risk for diabetes. My parents both died of it. 
I try to look after myself so I don't have to go to the doctor. We also found that they were very unwilling to take their children to the doctor as well. Health providers were really quite quite forthcoming and honest. And and I think this, you know, is is something that was really required for this to go to the next place. So policy and team challenges came up as a as an overriding theme. Um lack of team support. Uh, so the policy challenges in, included the whole ward structure. Things have changed because they now have moved into a new children's hospital, but there was a lot of difficulties because the ward was structured in on different floors and things like that. One provider said, the new tubal ligation policy solves a problem but creates another one for women who are marginalized, women who do not have a family doctor. Most uh, providers felt that the, the, the environment was changing, uh, but there was a sense of this old guard had to transition out. Uh, team approach, the lack of, uh, of team approach and integration between uh, the Saskatoon Health Region and Child and Family Services. Um, Aboriginal women don't know who's seeing them in the hospital. They don't know that the, that the physician is supposed to get the consent signed. They don't know who's interacting with them. Um, so, so it's very confusing for them. And in busy ORs, oftentimes it is a nurse who hands you the, the consent form and says sign it, you know. So, and they're quite busy, so they, they just keep doing that. Um, one provider said that uh, the one of the biggest things that she was concerned about was the apprehension of newborns. The way, and she said, you know, the the only way these two big ministries, health and uh, child and family services, connect is through a social worker. And certainly, I found that in the policy. There really wasn't much in the policy to say who was supposed to be doing what. There were some who attempted advocacy um, when providers said, one girl was crying while she was getting an epidural. She wanted her mom. And the nurses were, were like, she can't come in the room. We weren't in an OR. We were in a birthing suite. There was no reason for that. One physician said, I asked the nurse, who was in with her when CFS came? The nurse said, well, nobody. We try to be there. The physician said, well, I was in-house and nobody called me. The next big section was on attitude towards Aboriginal women. Again, the providers looked at their perceptions of the women's challenges and experiences. And again, newborn uh, apprehensions arose. Uh, one person said they scare women into not coming to the hospital. It's a barrier to health care, and it also affects the family. The new policy was the, that high-risk mothers are, are probably the ones that are more easily coerced, and these are the mums who are getting their babies apprehended. There was a spectrum uh, and continuance of ignorance, bias, racism, and discrimination that was observed. 
in the hospital environment. Some do not understand racism. A provider said, in, the nurses in our hospital, in our hospital are all racist. I, I don't think that there's racism involved. So, and that kind of took me aback a little bit. Providers related that there's a differential in power between Aboriginal women and the health providers. A nurse will ask a social worker, aren't you apprehending that baby? That baby should not be going home with mom. Some say it's more like people talking amongst themselves, you know, desk talk. This person may say, this person had so many children, shouldn't we stop her? Yet others do understand, stating, if a person has always had power, they don't know what it's like to be powerless. Another issue that came up from health providers was what was termed implicit bias in the media. And this was in particular that some were quite upset and shocked that social workers were pointed out as the people who did this by the media. And they were upset that the media didn't do some fact-checking. The other thing was that some people were upset and they questioned the truthfulness of the women who reported in the media. But our, our study actually showed that this was a typical experience. It wasn't just these two women who reported it. And finally, in this, the, the internal and external impacts uh, on care. Informed choice perception. Providers felt that they give good contraception options and cannot understand why women uh, would be coerced. Perceptions of care. The ward environment, um, there was a general sense that a ward on any given day comes down to the personality of the day. Some of the nurses will roll with things and others want to stop everything and solve that one problem. So, so it's, and then one person related that there were a particular group of nurses that they felt might actually be coercing. Overall, they, they all said that there had been a lot of change in terms of a, a positive change, but definitely they were willing to have more change. Again, the, uh, the impact of external social services came up. Uh, one provider said, the biggest trauma is CFS in the hospital. I understand that children need to be protected, but I don't <clears throat> believe the hospital is the place for that to happen. In, in that's apprehensions of newborns. There's a, a prenatal gap with healthcare between healthcare and child and family services. The woman is only in the hospital a couple of days max, and CFS cannot get involved until they're actually had the baby. Yet health doesn't know what's going on out in the community. So they, they found that was a difficult thing to handle with. There were attempts to make changes. There was a, a particular clinic that was having high-risk rounds trying to connect between CFS and the medical community. But the problem was of doing that, it's not really part of CSF mandate, so their participation in that isn't necessarily sanctioned by their legislation. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about the calls to action and some general observations that we've had. 
So I had no idea this was going to explode into the national and international focus that it, that it has taken. And looking back, the recommendations and the calls to action were created with the Saskatoon Health Authority in mind. And uh, I would have probably, knowing what I know now, would have created them a little bit differently. I, and I also want to commend the Saskatoon Health Authority for contract for actually getting a hold of me. They didn't have to. They, they sought me out and they said, we wanna, we wanna do something about this. And I have to say that they were very helpful. They were very good to work with and they allowed us the autonomy to get the job done our way. And I, and I think it was very difficult for them, but I just wanted to, to say that. So the first thing for me as a lawyer was get me all your policies. I need to review them. And the first, very first call to action was to revise the policies. So um, the uh, newly implemented tubal ligation and consent policy, uh, we needed we needed to really have have a good look at these and to utilize some of the the in-house people that they had there. They they had a very strong First Nation and Métis health service in place that they weren't really using. And, um, and it was the, with, el with elders on the, on the service. So they needed to really implement the use of the, of the people that they had in place. And, uh, we also asked them to require that all staff understand and comply with the title, the document title, Our Values in Action, which we reviewed and thought was a, a pretty good one. The next call to action was looking at the requirements in Canadian law. And because my background is in Indigenous health and the law, I have an understanding of what's gone wrong in Indigenous health in this country and how Indigenous people are the only ones in this country that hold very powerful constitutionally protected rights and rights to health. This is right, Aboriginal rights and treaty rights that are in Section 35 of the Constitution. These are held by each individual Indigenous person in this country who also have their own inherent laws that is outside of Western law. So this has to form the framework for establishing protections for women who've been forcibly sterilized and to prevent it from happening again. The, um, we also need to be looking at the TRC call to action number 18 and UNDRIP. And any framework also must include the Inuit who hold constitutionally protected rights as well. And quite often we see them left out and uh, that is, uh, their rights are just as powerful as First Nations and Métis and they need to be recognized as well. The other thing I want to mention right at this point is, uh, and, and I, I hear it every day, and it's about the guardian and ward theory. It's, it's about healthcare professionals thinking they know best for Indigenous women or, or for, for other people. And, and what happened was in the 1800s, American law was brought into, into Canada that implemented the guardian and ward theory where Indigenous people were thought not capable of making decisions on their own and they had to be cared for as wards. This underpins our health policies that we have today. And it was in 1982, it was replaced with the legally fiduciary, legally enforceable fiduciary obligation through the Supreme Court Guerin decision. So when I, when I look at some of the health policies that we have, I see that inherently we see that, oh, it's making, it, it's, it's supplementing that imbalance that we see that 
those indigenous people are not capable of making those decisions, so those decisions have to be made for them. And I think this forced and coerced sterilization of indigenous women is a very good example of that. One of the other calls to action was about cultural training. We listed it as a call to action, and I have since heard this over and over and over again as a panacea to fix the problem entirely. But we know that cultural training is good. We know that, and I'm really pleased to hear that it's working and it's happening in uh, many educational systems, but it isn't the only solution. For the Saskatoon Health Authority, this was important, and I do believe that they started implementing this soon after the report was done. Education was another call to action. So we advocated for a culturally appropriate education for all health professionals. And we needed to see, wanted to see cultural competency training in education, in uh, nursing, medical school, and all of the health professions. There were some recent approaches that were in uh, 19, in uh, 2017 where, that were actually pretty good. It was Ontario Indigenous Cultural Safety and Indigenous healthcare providers say cultural safety training would help First Nations patients. The First Nations Health Authority in BC has done a lot of work, and there's probably many of you in here that know of what's happening right now in this area. We um, suggested that uh, we, well, we noticed that no one was asking the people who'd been affected. Nobody was asking the women that had been sterilized. So given its commitment to reconciliation, we asked that the people in Saskatoon be full partners in designing health services that would meet the needs of the Indigenous women and ask the women, ask their opinion, ask them what they need. We know that there have been opportunities that have arisen in the Saskatchewan Provincial Healthcare Restructuring, and it would have been very beneficial to have a real Indigenous focus in that area to uh, advocate on behalf of the Indigenous people within the region. We know that the any kind of restructuring requires the uh, inclusion and the direct um, input of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, and requires extraordinary measures with culturally grounded health care that Aboriginal women and the families create for themselves. So in this call to action, it's the... Uh, looking at the advisory council and making sure that they have authority and that we can look at traditional health care to blend in and to assist Indigenous women to reclaim their rightful place in society. They needed to partner with clinical and community cultural content experts, such as the Canadian Indigenous Nurses Association and the Indigenous Physicians Association of Canada. Prioritize and use this Saskatoon Health Region Aboriginal Health Council that was already in place. They need to use them more effectively and work on an Indigenous health engagement strategy. We asked them to ensure full implementation and monitoring of the Saskatoon Health Region and coordinate with the, with the supports in place around Saskatoon. There's, there's many good structural supports in Saskatoon already. And it would be important to access them and not be there a sole unit. There's a Federation of Sovereign Indian Nations there. There's the Métis there. And I believe there's a, a Inuit groups as well. And the other thing that is very, very, very important 
is the reparation aspect. Ask the women what they need, what they want to heal. I have to just tell you a little side story here. A couple of months ago or a month ago, I was booked in late to a hotel. And it was just uh, the, the clerk at the front desk and I there. And I gave her my credit card and ID and said, oh, she said, you're that famous senator. And I said, well, I'm not very famous, but I am a senator. And she says, no, you're the senator, the senator of sterilization. And I said, that's an area I work in, yes. And she looked at me, and the tears started coming out of her eyes. And she said, they sterilized me when I was 21 in Saskatoon. I had four children. They told me it was best for me. I'm 35 years old now. My children are grown. I have a new man, and I want babies. I can't afford IVF. How am I going to have children? This was uh, not very long ago. So the, the reparation aspect is really important. So a reproductive center is something that uh, Judy and I had talked about on how important it is to have intensive support for women with really complex life situations and Aboriginal women who are pregnant. One health provider said that there were at least 30 high-risk pregnant women in their practice. So what in fact happened uh, by October of 2018, our study finished in July 2017, they did the public uh, apology, and they got to work. And, and so they actually created something called Sanctum House 1.5. It's been quite successful. They've had um, 18 babies at, and moms go through there, and only one baby was put into care. So that's amazing. And the other thing is a birth support uh, worker program that the that the health region put in place, and they've already had nine graduates from that. This is how we wrapped up. Mary Lee's a, a woman of many, many talents. She is a teepee maker as well. So she made a teepee, and we um, raised it at my place just outside of Ottawa. It was a spiritual ceremony that wrapped up what we were doing. The ceremony marked the end of the external review and the beginning of a renaissance injustice in women's reproductive rights. So just really quickly on where we're at right now, we're going to hear something about uh, class action lawsuits that are going on in the country. There have been a lot of media reports. There's more women have become much more public. I was appointed to the Senate in March. My first speech was about sterilization of Indigenous women. We've had the UN Committee on Torture release a report giving Canada a year to address this. We have, uh, I sit on the Standing Committee on Human Rights at the Senate, and we did a short study on it, and we're hoping that when uh, we're, our committee is able to get up and running again, that we can continue this with um, speed. The House of Commons Committee studied it, and uh, we have, my office has been very busy. We are doing uh, more like a clearinghouse in my office. We're doing a mapping project. We have lots going on in the office. There's been a lot of media and there's been a lot of international and national attention with some really interesting people. There's been much activity, but I really have to thank Margot Greenwood for indulging me in a Saturday morning coffee and listen to me talk endlessly about these issues and think about it. 
and it, and she made it happen. And I want to thank Indigenous Services Canada and Health Canada for putting this conference together because here's where we can come up with a plan and we can make it happen. Miigwech. For more information about Senator Boyer, Dr. Bartlett, and the National Gathering, or to hear more episodes of Voices from the Field, visit the Center's website at nccih.ca. Music on this podcast is by Blue Dot Sessions. It appears under a Creative Commons license. Learn more at www.sessions.blue.